0: Hello, this is Dr. Gwen. Today is Sunday, March 20th, a very rainy day in Santa Barbara. I got home a week ago from uh, a trip to Vietnam and Thailand, and it was an amazing experience. Um, Let me start with the first article. This actually comes out of time, and it's called Making Sense of Medical Statistics, What Patients Should Do. And I one of my favorite classes to teach is statistics. So I really wanted to share this one because it brings in the um, some of this unique statistics particular to evidence-based practice, which is what is kind of a buzzword used nowadays that is guiding clinicians on how to um, make decisions to change their practice or to guide clinical practice. So let me share this one it says. Sean King died in a Philadelphia hospital in 2005, and he was only 59, and just a week before his death, he'd been feeling very healthy. But a heart catheterization showed blocked vessels to his heart, and a cardiothoracic surgeon recommended immediate bypass surgery. King's second open-heart surgery in two years. Further tests revealed a snag. The right ventricle of his heart had attached to his breastbone, the sternum. I think the surgeon quoted a risk of death around 5%, says Bon Ku, which was Kang's son-in-law. Sure enough, when the surgeons cut into the sternum, they also cut into the ventricle that was attached to the bone, and he died two days later. It's crazy. A 5% risk is high, Ku says now, but his wife and their family needed to make a decision about surgery quickly. Put yourself in their shoes. It wasn't that big of a deal when the surgeon was telling us, and I just don't think we asked those questions that we should have. I mean, imagine if you were told you had a 5% risk, you automatically think 95% that means you're going to do just fine. Whether 5% seems like a big number or a small number, of course, depends on the situation but a growing body of research shows that preventing excuse me that presenting the same information in different ways with different stats can lead people to different decisions we know that we don't always fathom risk easily more surprising perhaps is that at least when it comes to some very commonly used risk statistics in medicine there is no evidence that doctors process the numbers any better than patients do ku and his wife King's daughter are both MDs, yet under pressure and pressed for time, they too relied on just one or two numbers they had available and on the expert opinion of their surgeon. Informed decision-making assumes that you've informed your patients about benefits and risks. We do this by presenting them with numbers, said a professor of medicine at the University of Buffalo and McMaster University. This week, Her and her colleagues were publishing a new report about how exactly patients perceive the numbers. The report is written for the Cochrane Collection, and this is something that, a, a collaboration, something that I endorse my students to go to, which is an organization that synthesizes existing research findings. The authors set out to compare three risk statistics in particular. These are the absolute risk reduction, the relative risk reduction, and the number needed to treat. All three of those are commonly used in evidence-based practice. Studies to date suggest already that people may be more persuaded by some stats than others. Um, this this echo is the name of the, the professor at um, University of Buffalo McMaster University and colleagues scoured the medical l- literature for every possible published study on their topic, and compiled results from all scientific articles that met their criteria, and they found 35. The review finds that, in general, both health consumers and health professionals have better comprehension of absolute risk reductions than relative risk reductions. For example, if a new hypothetical drug reduces annual heart attack incidence in a population from 2% to 1%, then the absolute risk reduction is one percentage point. However, the relative risk reduction would be 50% since the risk has been cut in half. Interesting, huh? Although people usually understand the absolute measures better, yes, that includes doctors who are just as, just as susceptible to confusion as all of us, which I would agree that's very true, the relative measures tend to be more persuasive. That 50% figure seems much more impressive than the 1%, so you're more likely to act on it, better or worse. Um, The needed to treat in this case would be 100. To avert one heart attack case, you would need to treat 100 patients. So the myth is not too complex, but the implications may be. So if Sean King's family had been given relative risks rather than absolute risks, if, for example, if they had been told that his death risk was 100% higher than was normal for the surgery because his right ventricle was attached to the sternum, then may they have responded differently than they did to the overall 5% disc re- death risk? And if so, would that have been a good thing? The studies in the Cochrane Review looked mostly at whether people understand information how they perceive the medication being presented, and how persuaded they are. What we would be more interested to know is whether this format or the other is consistent with values and preferences, according to the author. In other words, we want to know which presentation leads people to the decisions they actually make. With well, today's big push for evidence-based practice, you, we may one day find out. We may one day find out, though. For now, it's an open question with so many facts to process. How can we know which really matter and which are most relevant for our health decision? And here are some tips that they came up with. One, don't be shy. Ask for the kind of information you'd find helpful, especially if you tend to find numbers confusing or frustrating. What kind of complications does your doctor expect? Is this procedure common? Knowing that your doctor performs the procedure every day and hasn't had some particular complication in years may be easier for you to process than the overall complications rate. Remember, experience is the best best teacher. Number two, excuse me, do the math. As you do think through numbers, pay attention to which stats you received. Are they relative measures or absolute measures? A procedure that cuts your risk by one-third will have a much bigger impact if you're at high risk to begin with. Example, dropping down from 30% to 20% is a bigger absolute change than dropping from 3% to 2%. Three, weigh the options. Ask about alternatives to the procedure you're considering. What would happen if you didn't get surgery or if you opted against a new medication? If you can, get a second opinion from another health professional. Finally, know yourself. Medical staff can give you pros and cons, but only you know how much you value different outcomes or how keen you are to avoid side effects. That's why you have to make the final decision. So, take responsibility for your health. The next one actually comes out of the Wall Street Journal, and it's called New Efforts to Simplify End-of-Life Care Wishes. I've always been an advocate of encouraging people to fill out their advanced directives, and I have a website um, link for those of you who live in the United States where you can get a a copy of the advanced directive for free, and I do encourage all to do that. Um, Advanced directives allow people to plan ahead for end-of-life care, can be too vague to cover many medical situations. And a growing number of states are promoting another program to help physicians with patients' um, specific instructions. So I thought I would update you on this one. The programs are known as Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, or POLST. They are meant to complement advanced directives, sometimes known as living wills, in which people state in broad terms how much medical intervention they will want when their condition no longer allows them to communicate. A POST, which is signed by both the patient and the physician, spells out such choices as whether a patient wants to be in a mechanical breathing machine or feeding tube and receive antibiotics, so it gives a little bit more detail. POST programs are currently in use in four states and regions, including California, Oregon, and New York. Three states Colorado, Idaho, and Pennsylvania adopted POLTS recently, and another sixteen states in six regions are developing programs. Besides providing documents that most local that most local regulations, the programs train healthcare providers to discuss end of life treatment choices with patients with terminal illness or anyone wishing to define their care preferences. More than 75% of people will be unable to make some or all of their own medical decisions at the end of life, but we don't prepare patients and their families to deal with this situation and it's frightening and difficult for them to know what to do, and I'm sure many of you have been through this. Planning ahead for end-of-life care is meant to allow patients to reduce the amount of medical intervention, if that's what they prefer, but patients can also make clear their wishes if they prefer maximum intervention. A POST form is an official medical order. Um, Unlike an advanced directive, which can be misplaced or vaguely worded, a POST spells out specific treatment instructions and remains part of a patient's medical record. In Oregon, for example, the documents also are stored in a state registry, so emergency medical tax as well as hospitals have access to them. States that have adopted the PULSE program also have put in place general protections for medical people who follow the directives. Advanced directives, which also allow people to designate a surrogate to make decisions about care, vary state by state. While some states' forms may be highly specific, they may be printed out and stored somewhere where they can't be found when they're needed. Many states also accept other documents, such as a form called Five Wishes that allows people to spell out what kind of quality of life they want and make requests, such as having their bodies massaged with oils for comfort. A study supported by NIH last year found that patients with Pulse forms were more likely to have treatment preferences documented than patients who use traditional documents, such as the Living Will and Do Not Resuscitate Orders. Making end-of-life decisions when a loved one's wishes are not known can be difficult. After years of struggling with Parkinson's disease, for example, and congestive heart failure, um, Nancy Williams' mother became seriously ill last August and slipped into a coma from which doctors said she would never recover. And although Ms. Williamson and and her sisters wanted doctors to do more, they learned that their mother had signed a Pulse form asking for only limited medical treatment. The, Ms. Williamson, who is a California lawyer, says that after arguing with doctors because she wanted to hold on to her mother, I realized having the post made it easier for us because my mom had made her own health care decisions. So isn't that nice? <clears throat> the experience led her to help clients prepare end-of-life documents. End-of-life directives are controversial. Anti-abortion group, Life Tree Inc., for example, sup- opposes the signing of living wills and says life-sustaining treatment should always be administered. The group's executive dec- director says post programs provide legal protection to medical personnel for hastening death, thus encouraging imposed death on patients. That's so discouraging. Studies show that many elderly patients prefer to limit medical interventions. In one study of hospice patients, 79% wanted comfort measures only, and 20% wanted only limited additional inter- interventions such as IV flus and antibiotics, and in another study, only 12% of residents of a long-term skilled nursing facility wanted intensive care treatments that would put them on a um, ventilator. Physicians often don't have the time or training to coach patients through end-of-life uh, conversations. So that's where this Pulse document comes in. Um, regardless of whether people fill out a post form or advance directives, a coalition of healthcare groups says it's important for people to make some decisions about end of life wishes and to choose a surrogate who understands their wishes. Anyway, I just wanted to, to share that with you and I'll try to post some information on my website. It is so important and and, and if it should change at any time, if your surrogate, relationship changes, make sure that you update whatever document you're using. Mm -hmm. Well, it's getting a little long now, and uh, I just wanted to wish you health and happiness. And uh, again, feel free to send me an email at any time. This is Dr. Gwen. Take care.